Well, today is part six, the final installment in our Voices series, and we have Dr. Sochi Alviso with us. Sochi, why don't you come on down as I introduce you here. Sochi is an assistant professor of religious studies at Cal State Northridge in the area of women and religion and the philosophy of sex, gender, sexuality. She has a PhD in practical theology from Boston University. Her research is in feminism and the emerging church. That's good. That's applicable here. Uh, she is co-founder of Feminism and Religion, an online project of diverse feminist voices from around the world in dialogue about feminism in religion at the intersection of scholarship, activism, and community. She was born and raised in L.A. What part of Los Angeles? Born in East L.A. Hey, why don't we turn... Uh... I think I turned it oh, on. Oh, you're on now. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And um, grew up in, like, Maywood, East L.A. and Maywood. Wow. And then high school in Pomona. Wow. All right, local guy. USC. Cool. Well, welcome, Sochi. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Let me get that yeah. quick. Aaron knows this already, but I'm an awkward speaker. And um, it helps me if uh, at any point you all feel inspired or have a question or want to interact, react to something I say, that helps me feel more comfortable. So feel free. Feel free to interrupt. Um, so I realize I'm at the end of your series. Um, I was asked to kind of give a feminist um, kind of reading of Christianity or um, and radical theology. And the tricky thing, right? Sochi, I'm sorry to interrupt. Could you yeah. take the lapel and just lift it a little higher up? Yeah. Okay. I'll get, the thing is I start quiet, and then as I get comfortable, I get louder, so... Um, the tricky thing, right, about feminist theology and radical theology is that it's not really a thing that I can, like, give you, right? It's not like a noun, something I can say, like, this is what it is, you know, or da-da-da, but, um, or, like, paint your picture. Because part of both of those things, radical theology and feminist theology, is that they're practices, they're um, praxis, they're a way of uh, kind of critically reflect, reflectively doing something all the time with whatever, you know, with whatever you have theologically. Um, and so that's going to look different. Um, there's no, not going to be any one kind of picture to kind of capture that. So... Okay, so yeah, so it's a praxis. So we're gonna, I'm gonna try to have us engage a little bit in that kind of practice, that kind of critical reflection. Um, and for me, that, you know, I was introduced kind of as, you know, Dr. Sochil Alviso and, you know, my Cal State Northridge and stuff. But here, like, really, the thing I love to do is theology. Like, I'm kind of, even though I'm a total radical, um, feminist, lesbian feminist, I love Jesus. <laughs> so I, it's a lot of people who think of me as feminist first, don't think of me as Christian. And a lot of people who think of me as Christian can't imagine how I'm radical and feminine, you know, in my feminism. 
But for me, those two things are so interrelated. Like I can be a Christian because I have feminism, because I have this practice, this way of engaging with the world that um, that made sense to me um, from a Christian perspective. You know that it made sense to me that I could um, that I could engage in Christianity and try to figure out the ways of Jesus, how to follow the ways of Jesus in ways that also took into account the sexism and misogyny that's embedded in our practice, in our, his, in our history, in our Christian history and theologies. Um, it just made sense that these things should come together. So I like to start with my favorite gospel, the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think a lot of revolutionaries were inspired um, by the gospel, by the story of Jesus, right? Um, and I like the gospel mark because when it's the earliest, I forgot what time we started. I know, five minutes ago, okay. Okay. Um, it's the earliest gospel that we have. It's the earliest account of the good news of Jesus. You know, gospel just means good news. Like the, like the, the announcements, you know, in the Roman Empire was when like the emperor would have an announcement and, you know, they go around making the announcement of the good news. Um, when, you know, Jesus and his followers were being a little radical, you know, a little revolutionary and basically calling their own uh, experience of Jesus the good news. Um, so it's the shortest one also, and it's pretty action-packed. Like from the get-go, it just kind of takes off, and things are just happening one after another immediately, immediately. And the part that we um, read earlier was after John was arrested, right? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Um, my favorite part of the whole gospel is repent. <laughs> and I love it because it basically means like turn around. It's the same to me, repent and revolution are like the same thing. How do we learn how to like turn around and do things differently? Like reconsider what we've been doing so that it's no longer stuck. You know what I mean? So that it's like, it's alive. So that, um, so that it's bringing new life. But that beginning, right, of this, you know, new way, this reign, you know, this kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing doesn't start there, right? The Gospel of Mark starts with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Basically, the good news starts with John the Baptist, who's the one who's announcing and preparing the way. Revolution, repentance, this figuring out of this new way of living and relating starts with preparation, because it's a freaking hard thing to do. <laughs> like, to actually change our ways is really hard. Like, we don't even know how to do it. Um, it scares us. Um, it scares us so much that you know, you have 
this announcement. The beginning of the good news starts with this announcement of preparation. And then you have John the Baptist appears. It says, John the Baptizer appeared in the wilderness. And so he's proclaiming and he's baptizing, inviting people into this. And then Jesus shows up and he gets baptized, right? And then, you know, gets a divine vote of confidence. Um, it says, you know, as he's coming up from the water, he saw that the heavens torn apart and the spirit descended on him like a dove and the voice from the heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And then the spirit sends Jesus out into wilderness. So you have announcement, preparation, this baptism, kind of this like, um, you know, this affirmation from the heavens. And then it's like wilderness. It's like, you know, more preparation, like more hard stuff. Then after all that, do you get the now after John was arrested? So just think about that. Now after John was arrested, John was arrested in a way like that part. Okay, that part is complete. You know what I mean? Like John has done his part. He's out of the picture a little bit because he just got arrested. And that's when Jesus, for the first time, we hear him proclaim, proclaim something. We hear him say something. Y'all have thoughts on that? Any thoughts or reactions, questions? It was awesome to hear you explain that and be looking at the window that is the picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. When I was like writing my notes, I was looking at like, oh my gosh, look at that. And like, think about that, right? Like John the Baptizer was this like crazy half-naked guy who lived in the wilderness and ate like bugs and stuff, you know, like a prophet, you know? So, I mean, it's like, it's not what you expect. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay. So after Jesus makes this announcement, it just goes. From there, it just goes, right? He just says, like, he makes this announcement, repent and believe in the good news. Like, the time is now. This thing we've been waiting for, this new way of life that we call the kingdom is, like, fulfilled. It's, like, now. So let's just do it. Um, believe in it. Like, you know, move into it. And so then Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, and then um, he just sees these brothers fishing, and then he just says, follow me. And so immediately, like, he's involving people. Like, right away, first of all, the whole thing doesn't even start with Jesus, right? The whole thing starts with, you know, the prophet, with John the baptizer, um, even the wild, you know, even the animals and stuff when Jesus is in the wilderness. Um, and then it's like, immediately he's like gathering community. He's like not doing this alone. Then you get to the very end. And I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read you the end of the gospel. When the Sabbath was over, over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us, from the entrance of the tomb? 
When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, just think about that. They expected a tomb, a closed tomb, with the dead body in there. But when they got there, like, it's not, it's not a tomb, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a wide open space, like, the, the stone has been rolled away. Um, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be terrified. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And then do you all know what happens? Somebody want to tell us what happens? Anyone know the end of the Gospel of Mark? I like to think of the Gospel of Mark as like the original Christian manifesto. It's like the revolutionary manifesto. You all should like print it out and just like have it and read it all the way through and consider it your manifesto. The end is, so they went out and fled the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to no one, for they were afraid. They went back to the tomb expecting to find Jesus where they had left him. You mean this person who had died, who they expected was leading them into this whole way, you know, this whole like kingdom. That word was like the way that it was, it was the word that captured the vision of a way of being that was just, right? Where there was no oppression, no exploitation, where there were no hungry people, where there were no prisoners. Um, and they, they went back thinking that he would be there, but he wasn't, right? The angel says like, he went ahead. You're supposed to go meet him in Galilee, just like he told you, but they were terrified. They expected to be able to go back to the tomb and do things in the manner that was traditional. You know, put the spices, you know, prepare the body. But it's like, no, no, that's not how it is. But they were afraid. And originally, you know, the earliest manuscript of the Gospel of Mark ends right there. And to me, it's because to do things differently, we really don't even know how to imagine that. You know, like it really is scary because we don't have a picture for it. But the practice then, I think, is of moving into the exploration of a new way of living and relating that, you know, we encounter and what we consider the good news um, for some of us, especially those that consider ourselves Christian, the good news is, you know, in the way that Jesus lived in community with his friends and followers and stuff. Um, but we move into the practice that is scary only because we can do it with each other. And we take, um, we take each move and we risk experimenting because we're not doing it alone.
So, part of radical theology and feminist theology is all about the practice of walking away from dead idols. What are the things that have become entombed for us that we think, that we expect will stay the same, will remain the same, just as we left them? What are those things that we don't even realize are idols, you know what I mean, that are fixed in this way that um, prevent us from going ahead, you know what I mean, and seeing what else has been prepared. Okay, I need stuff from you all. What are you all thinking? Yeah, so one of the things I try to do is I start with what I might consider our shared language. And so, you know, the gospel gives us a shared language, and the translation in the New Revised Standard Version is kingdom. Um, but you also, you know, I also try to say, like, you know, uh, this new way of being and relating kingdom. You know, that's the word that captures the vision of a way of life that doesn't include, you know, exploitation and oppression and stuff. So what I try to do is, like, even start with that word that I find problematic, really, because I, don't, because I think it becomes fixed, right? And I think it, it stops sparking our imagination to what was meant there, you know, which was supposed to be revolutionary, which was supposed to turn the whole order of our society upside down. Um, and then just like give other entry points, other like metaphors, other ways of expressing it. So I do think um, language is really important. That becomes one of the things that is um, that becomes a fixed idol for us. You know, we have such limited, um, we have such a small repertoire of you know people who identify as Christian of uh, words that we use to reference God. Uh, the divine. I like to think of, um, I, whenever I talk about God, I really always just talk about goddess. Like, you know, if I, even if I trip, like you go, oh my God, or not when I trip, I guess. I say something else when I trip. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, oh my God, I found that. I always, it just comes out, oh my goddess, oh my goddess, just because we have to try to like remember that what is God? Like, we, sometimes the word fails to capture anything anymore, you know, that's vibrant, that's living and stuff. So, um, so yeah, um, language does become something we have to, it's a good place to start. Language is a good place to start for breaking things open um, in the ways that they become fixed for us. What else? Mm. More person centered experiential and this
you see, you know, you only you only see people moving forward into new ways of thinking with what seems to be very direct, concrete, uh, you hear a voice of God, you have a vision, these kinds of experiences. Of, so maybe could you talk to what do we do when we just have these inklings of something more, but we don't have, you know, we don't have these experiences that are happening in the scripture of a sheep with lizards coming down and oh. Oh, yeah. You know, these, these kind of like oh, yeah. Jesus knocking us off our horse and talking to us, but, yeah. but we have that, that little something yeah. that doesn't feel as profound as what we're reading. Okay. I love that because what you're saying is like we don't seem to have these like, uh, you know, scriptural, uh, dramatic elements in our lives, right? That kind of make something obvious or invite us into a different way. Um, in the same way, you know, like he said, like the animals coming down, you know, then saying, eat this. Um, I think we do. I think we do, and we just don't even know how to recognize it or pay attention to it because we're so um, patterned in a certain way. You know what I mean? Our responses are patterned in a certain way. So I'll give you an example. There was... um, I. One of my convictions is that we should never include scripture in a service if we're not going to, like, talk about it, like, uh, preach on it, reflect on it. Um, and this is why. <laughs> One time we were, I was at the chapel service at the School of Theology um, where I did my um, master's program. And, you know, it was a chapel, and they had, like, um praise scripture and praise service. It's like a service where they just sing songs and then they read scripture and then they sing songs and they read scripture. It has a name, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. And, um, and they didn't read, they didn't, you know, there was no homily, no reflection, no sermon, no talk. And they chose to read, you know, in sections, Revelation chapter 17. I think it's chapter 17. And it's all this language about, um, in reference to Babylon, you know what I mean? And in reference of to um, evil is basically like described in a metaphor of a whore, you know what I mean? And it's all like uh, female um, pronouns for everything that's bad, <laughs> you know, and how her body's going to burn up and how the smoke is going to go up to the skies, and how everyone will see that she was wicked, and you know she will be ravaged, and da da da. And it was just so violent and graphic. And meanwhile, my friend, little by little, starts to like slump in her in her um, in her you know in her seat, and her legs start to go up, and she starts to curl. And next thing I know, she's just sobbing by the end of the thing. And I'm just like, so I'm just sitting there with her, and I'm just like, you know, what's wrong and stuff. And she's just like, I, I just can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? This language, like all ma- language for God is always male, you know, this like Lord, you know, King. And, and she's like, and when, they, when you hear female pronouns and stuff, she's like, um, it, it's all like this bad stuff, you know, and it's all this violent, you know, um, metaphor and stuff. And she's like, I know what it's like to have my body um, violated, you know what I mean? To have my body broken. 
um, she's like, I don't need to come to church to hear that and not even be like, to. and the thing was that this woman was reading the scriptures like, like she was announcing good news. <laughs> I remember her arms like this. Like I remember her like, and she had a smile on her face as she was reading Revelation. And it's just like, how do we disconnect? You mean, how do we disconnect the impact of language to real people's lives? So I think like that's a moment. Like if we can just attune to the ways that the disruptions are happening, um, they really, you know what I mean? Like it's they're there. I think sometimes so so I mean that impacted me like in my practice of Christianity and like how I practice you know like our liturgical gatherings with our community um all the time because her experience stayed with me. Um and I think I can connect back. Oh, and the thing is about radical theologies and feminist theologies is that they're not ideologies. They're disruptions to ideologies that bring, um, that have a concern for the impact things have on people, like concrete impact of these things on real people's lives. So these commitments basically put people first. So instead of thinking of the ways that we, you know, we've practiced, the ways that we've been patterned, so that we think, well, no, this is the right way, right? This is what the scripture says, is to actually, like, well, let's see what, how this, how that interpretation of the scripture is enacted. How do we enact that? And is, when we practice it, is it bringing life? You know, is it like uh, comforting the wounded? You know, is it... Uh, you know, I don't know, countering the systemic ways that we value some people over others. I mean, do, do we disrupt those things? So, okay, <coughs> getting away from myself now. But does that a little bit? Yeah, I think those things are there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll tell you what my community did. I was part of a pub church that met in Boston. Um, a group of us helped start, and they're still going, and it was all collaborative. Like, everything we did, you know, the order of our service, how we decided to, like, gather, when we decided to gather, how we decided to spend our time, all of that, um, we decided together collab- collaboratively. And one of the things that we decided early on that was that, First, we, we co-facilitated. So depending on who was facilitating that day, decided what sacred text to bring to our shared conversation. I was one of the people who brought basically the Bible as you know our sacred text. Other people brought other sacred texts, poetry, literature. Um, so that was one thing. We placed, we recognized that the divine communicates through a lot of different ways, you know? 
And not all of us prioritized. Some of us were Christian in that group. Others weren't, but we were willing to gather as a community. Okay. So we contextualize it among other texts in order to not just have this be the only word in our gatherings. Second, we took the text on from beginning to end. We spent two years on the Gospel of Mark. We spent a year and a half on 1 Corinthians. Then we started to work through Jeremiah. Have you ever read Jeremiah? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like, um, it's like judgment. It's like, you know, the, the, what do you call it? The stereotype of like, um, you know. Yeah, like, it's like that because it's like, you know, the prophet just telling, you know, the people of Israel all the ways that they're like turning from God and it's just like doom, you know, judgment and doom and stuff. But when we did it together, see, our, conver- our, our um, sermons were conversational. And we would just take a piece of, you know, at a time each week, whenever I was facilitating. Um, and when we did it together, we could say all those things. We can say, I hate Paul. Like, so many people hated Paul when we were working through 1 Corinthians. Because especially, you know, women have this association with Paul of, like, you know, calling women to be silent in church or things like that. Um, and, and some people hate Paul. And then, but then we, okay. So then they got to say that. But then somebody else, like me, who did the exegetical research and who like read on the commentaries and looked at different interpretations could say, then also can t- help contextualize it. Well, Paul, you know, when was Paul speaking? What were the concerns of the community? What was going on socioculturally? You know, I mean that that impacts what he might have been saying. And then all of a sudden, we would, in our communal engagement with the text, we would have different ways of understanding what could be going on in the text, so that there was no one single interpretation. That was the only one. And that was so empowering to people who felt hurt by the text. See, I didn't have that experience. Um, so it, it was easier for me, but I can help facilitate that. And all of a sudden, you know, May, you know I remember my friend Megan saying like, oh my gosh, this, this just changes my whole experience of this verse. You mean, and now if she hears somebody saying what well, it means this, she can actually say, well, you know, if you consider what else was going on, and if you consider in the context of the whole letter, you mean, so then that's how we would do it. That's how we would do it in a, in a way that it, it, it didn't feel as heavy. And it, and it diffused it of its power, of the, that hold it had on some of us. Yeah. Wow, okay, it's late. Um, that's good, though. I told you about Pub Church. Well, here's another way um, that we open ourselves up to kind of uh, a revolutionary gospel. Uh, was one, of, one of the kind of primary ways was to remember that, that even, you know, for those of us who call ourselves Christian, there's a way in which Jesus just becomes like, you know, he's the Lord, he's the Savior, you know. The, and then we, we hold Jesus up in a particular, in a way that makes him visible the reality of how Jesus did 
his work in the first place, which was always with others, which was always in community, that Jesus didn't actually drop from the sky. You mean as this like, you know, come to save the world. Um, but that the way in which Jesus saves is an invitation, is by offering an invitation and a model for a different way of living and relating in community. So a pub church, first communion. Communion was another very um, debated and contested practice at Pup Church. We had to do a lot of negotiating about how we practice this in a way that doesn't celebrate torture and death um, and broken bodies. I remember one friend who, um, you know, as a survivor of sexual violence, she's like, you know, I know what it's like to have my body broken and my blood spilled. I don't want to celebrate that. And I don't want to celebrate anybody else having have, had experienced that. Um, so how did we practice communion you know, in ways that took all of our different experiences into account? Uh, was one that, depending on who facilitated, you know, we practiced it differently. And when I, one of the ways that I like to practice it was to contextualize Jesus in community. Um, and I'm going to lead us in communion, but I'm going to tell you one thing first. The man I married baked this bread for you all. <laughs> and um, we love delicious bread. And communion, when you think about it, at a, kind of at a, a kind of elemental level, it's about, you know, this material, right? It's about sharing resources. And this material, bread, is delicious. And we always think this shared meal should be bountiful and should be delicious. So we were never afraid to take big pieces. <laughs> um, yeah, that's all I had to say about that. <laughs> also, eating together is messy, you know? And sometimes we don't even know how to do it. And it's never gonna look the same way because it depends on who's around the table. So if, you know, as we share communion, it looks different and it gets a little messy, that's all right, because every time we get together, it's going to be different. Um, so then we can just figure it out along the way. And we'll remember that before Jesus was his mother, before supper in the upper room, breakfast in the barn, before the Passover feast, the feeding trough, and here the altar of earth, fair linens of hay and seeds, before his cry, her cry, before his sweat of blood, her bleeding and tears, before his offering, hers, before the breaking of bread and death, the extending of her body in birth, before the offering of the cup, the offering of her breast, before his blood, her blood, and by her body and blood, his body and blood, and whole human being. The wise ones knelt to hear the woman's word in wonder, holding up her sacred child, her God in the form of a babe. She said, receive and let your hearts be healed and your lives be filled with love, for this is my body, this is my blood. So whether you eat or don't eat, whether you drink or don't drink, you are welcome to come out to new life.
at this table. Even as we continue passing and sharing communion, I'll do our little closing prayer. And then if there's any more Q&A you all want, I know that I already went way long um, and it was interactive already, but um, we are grateful for this shared meal and this small practice of a divine new way of life. May we let no beauty go unnoticed. Amen. I always hesitate to ask questions because I already have a microphone for half the service, so I don't, I don't want to monopolize. Um, but I saw my opportunity, so I took it. Um, how do you feel, I'll just be honest, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised with how hospitable you are, and I don't want that, like, pleasantly surprised. Because um, I think in our culture, and at least in, and especially in our Christian subculture, the word feminism um, and the word, word radical, and especially when put together, gets a pretty bad rap. Um, 
my mom, our mom, uh, I was talking to her yesterday, and she's like, I see you have a radical feminist coming to church tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we're super excited. And she's like, cool, I'm sure that will be interesting. <laughs> so uh, she's great. Um, but uh, I mean, just the very, the very terminology uh, usually gets a lot of um, stuff with it that we get you know, from pop culture, from news, whatever. Um, do you find, um, I guess, I'll, I'll leave it at, have you found that your approach and sharing what that means to you and what it means to be a feminist, what it means to be a radical theologian, um, I guess why do you choose, um, again, the pleasantly surprising, hospitable, let's find connections, let's find uh, a common ground as opposed to, you know, being more, I don't, I don't know if the word, aggressive, um, Milita militant, yeah, that's, that's always a word I hear associated. Yeah, I mean, obviously these are tropes, these are stereotypes, yeah. um, but I think are a common way that many people in our culture and, uh, and in Christianity think about feminism and ra uh, radicalism and mm -hmm. radical feminism. So mm -hmm. maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, it's real easy for me because I think of feminism as a political movement political movement to, all, to end all sexist oppression, misogyny, and um, you know, embedded prejudice, systemic prejudices against not just women, but actually other mar marginalized groups. So it's a political movement. When you're in a political movement, you want allies. You need allies. We don't change systems and structures by ourselves. Um, and same with Christianity for me. For me, to be Christian is to follow someone who was all about disrupting the systems of oppression, you know what I mean? Um, who put people first. I mean, the way that the stories of Jesus, the way that he interacted with people was not based on the cultural norms or expectations, you know what I mean? And often went against those because what he was doing was prioritizing the human that was before him in the situation that they were, um, in whatever the situation was that they, were, that they found themselves in and engaging with them that way first. You know I mean, as human and valuable and inherently worthy of the best possible way of life and to be able to participate in their community fully. Um, I see those things as completely compatible. So I like, I don't even choose, I don't even choose to be hospitable, right? Like, it's just like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, all of like, how do we do life together better? And to me, being feminist is to take into account the ways that we have not done that well when it comes to our universal kind of system of, um, of valuing men over women. I mean, there's just so many different ways where we can see that. And it doesn't mean that it makes us, you know, you as a probably male-identified person <laughs> and me as a female-identified person doesn't put us on the wrong, you know, on, on opposite sides of things. It, like, it's just a way of bringing awareness to the, the structures and systemic um, prejudices that we have inherited. And I would think that we all want to disrupt those. Building off of that, what are some things that the church could do to do better at getting rid of some of those systemic prejudices and biases? I Bring think in speakers. I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I also always think we're our best resource. Like you are already resourced with a whole room full of diverse perspectives. Sometimes we don't even know what each other are thinking or the ways that we might be experiencing things differently from one another. Because um, maybe someone has been attuned to like, you know what, every time we do this, this is a simple one. Um, when you all have gatherings or parties or, you know, like, thing, and this is not you all specific, but it, it's so typical that when, when we do certain kinds of events, who ends up in the kitchen? <laughs> um, or, like, what roles, like, you know, what roles do we just assume certain people will take on because of their sex or gender? I mean, things like that. And, like, I don't think, all I think we have to do is create spaces where we hear from one another. Like, among yourselves. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, bringing other outside voices, too. But, like, how do we increase, like, each person's wisdom, uh, participation, um, perspective? How do we include it and, like, make space for us to be able to hear from one another and, and then allow that to shape how we form as a body, how we organize as a body. So I just think some of it is just being open to each other as a resource. It's messy. Yeah, it's messy. Because we don't all agree. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. So during your talk, one of the things you mentioned was the idea of repentance. And one of the things that came into my mind as you were talking about that visually was um, how we need to, you know, you're, everything you're doing right now is hurting each other, and we need to go away from that and start loving mm. each other, which mm. I really liked kind of that, that concept. Um, my question for you in all your studies, specifically on, um, I guess, you know, um, the masculine and feminine, the pronouns that we use, um, when I think of early on Adam and Eve, my understanding in the, in, that God was looking for a helpmate. He didn't say he was looking for a woman specifically. Mm -hmm. um, he even presented animals to find that helpmate. Mm -hmm. And if you've had any studies on what that all means, and then also in the New Testament where it talks about in, the, in heaven, there's neither male nor female. Mm -hmm. And how do we get back to the idea of that we're souls in, you know, in God's image? I wish my uh, scriptural you know, studies friends were here because they would be able to speak to the text much more, much better than I could. I really can only speak about the Gospel of Mark, Corinthians, and some of Jeremiah, mostly because these are the ones that we engaged in like thoroughly in community, um, but I haven't done like widespread scriptural studies. The only thing I can say about Genesis and the creation stories is that we often only remember one of them and not the fact that there's two of them. I mean, and like, how do we allow those to, already there's a disruption. There's a disruption from the get-go in terms of thinking how we were created. Um, and so, yeah, I, like seriously, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't say more about the helpmate. You told me more that, than I had even considered. Um, because, yeah. So 
Sorry. Phyllis Tribble's God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality does a word study on the Hebrew in which she says, she argues that when God creates um, Adama, it just means earth, and it's actually not a gendered word in Hebrew. And when God creates gender, is at the moment that God creates both male and female, mm-hmm. and so that there's an equality there, and it wasn't that mm-hmm. male was prior to female. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, she's a Hebrew scholar. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, see. <laughs> awesome. Okay, we are at 11.30, and so, Sochi, are you okay hanging out for a few minutes if people want to mm-hmm. mingle and talk mm-hmm. with you? Cool. I knew you'd be cool with that. Um, all right, well, thanks so much for being here, and uh, there is leftover bread, and it's delicious, and so Max actually said to me, or to Emily, he's like, Jesus never tasted so delicious. <laughs> Amen. Um, all right, well, thanks for